Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is my truth. Tell me yours. On this episode, I spoke with artist Amy Koza. Uh, Amy, this was, this was a cool episode. Um, I've had this happen a few times where uh, sitting down to podcast with someone was the first time that I've actually met the person face-to-face in real life. Amy's someone... Uh, we had mutual artist friends and I followed her on social media for a while and, uh, been a big fan of her artwork and had reached out to her, you know, some time ago wanting to chat with her podcast and, uh, we were able to uh, make it happen this time, but it was cool to, uh, finally put a face to the artwork. So, you know, we met at the coffee factory in Salem, New Hampshire and had a, had a, Really interesting chat. Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit, and you know, getting to know her in in the the tangible world as opposed to just the digital world a little bit better. Uh, so yeah, uh, big thanks to Amy for meeting up with me, and hope you enjoy this conversation with Amy Koza. Well, not we, I should say, I talk trash about a certain famous rock star off mic. Now we can record. So, um, thanks for meeting me. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Um, so is this, we're in the coffee factory yes. in Salem, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Glad I, I'm, I'm glad we got that cleared up too. So be, the, the reason I had reached out to you like two weeks ago, however long ago it was, was because I'm about to leave my job in Peabody, mm-hmm. which is next to Salem, Mass. And I've had it in my head for a while that you were in Salem, Mass. I was like, well, this would make this would make sense to do it. I mean, I wanted to talk to you anyways. I think I reached out to you maybe like six months ago. Mm-hmm. But it's been like, th- doing this podcast has been interesting because there's been a few people that I've talked to who I was connected with through social media who sitting down to podcast with them was the first time we ever like met face to face so it's been an interesting thing um i've i've talked to some like friends recently about the whole phenomenon of like so many people don't have don't i i feel like don't have manners online as far as like especially with facebook um where people will just say just horrible, awful stuff. And a lot of times it's people that I know in real life. And I'm like, why would you, why would you say stuff like that? Or, you know, clearly this thing that I've posted about is important to me. It's fine if it's not important to you, but just move along. And they're like, well, it's the, the common answer have been for a while. Well, it's just, it's just Facebook. It's not real life. Like, don't get so upset about it or, but I just feel like at this point where we're at, and, you know, we were just before we were recording, we were talking about how, like, artists can connect with their, you know, fan base and whatnot. Like, I I think this is very much like social media is a way that people connect. It's a it's a viable way people connect now. I mean, you're 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 an artist who I think I first discovered you through Instagram and then I think we became Facebook friends after that. So I, you found it. Is that how you found me? I think so. I thought we had a mutual friend, uh, Sam Paolini. 
That could be too. Well, and I may Ron, have Ron Brain. I, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was Sam and I used to share. Used to both be in the uh, the Wrong Brain uh, shared space together. So, and it's funny too because I have probably probably like half a dozen artists, like regional artists that I follow. Who um, it's been like several years that I've been following them. I'm like, I don't even know how I connected to this person. Uh, initially but that's sort of that's sort of what I love about Instagram is you can discover all this amazing talent out in the world that it's just I mean it's it's to some degree I think it's kind of leveling the playing field uh, as far as like getting artists exposed to a wider audience I don't know how do you how do you feel about that it is but it isn't um I mean I'm an artist, yeah. but also my full-time job is I do also SEO, social media management, and yeah. development. So like my job a lot of the times is to like read up on the algorithms, how they change, um, how things are affecting yeah. users, and like how you can best reach your audience and get the best engagement, things like that. Um, whether or not I apply that to my own stuff, I'm usually pretty burnt out from doing it for sure, other people. Sure. Um, but um, it's difficult nowadays if you had been on Instagram when Instagram first started I feel like you would probably very quickly garner people garner followers and be able to get your art out there right um with the way that the algorithms are set up now where only very high engagement posts are being shown to people who do actually follow you yeah that's problematic because it's like you've committed yourself to following this page you want to see the posts Um, but they won't actually show you the posts in your feed or otherwise until this certain threshold of engagement is reached Mm. which is really a problem for artists Um, and it's you know I'm part of a lot of artist groups on the internet that you know people do struggle with this in real time they're like man I've got 4,000 followers and it says that only 12 people have seen my posts that's a like that's like sending out an email to 12,000 people and nobody gets to see it like Gmail decides to pick and choose who it goes to Um, which is just it's it's weird it's weird the way that it's set up and artists have tried to ditch the platform a lot of times but you know like Vero Mm -hmm. um, things like that but the problem is is that there's just so many people on Instagram and Facebook, they're they're the same thing at this point, Um, there's so many people on those platforms that that's where your biggest audience is going to be. For sure. It's just unfortunate that, uh, for example, he's got 4,000 followers on Instagram and we've seen his numbers get dwarfed down. He used to be able to sell things pretty effectively through Instagram. Now it's like, I think we've made two sales this yeah. year, even though he's posting every day, and yeah. people just don't see it. It's not that people don't like his stuff, or people don't want his stuff, it's just that Instagram has decided what should and shouldn't be shown. Right. And it's hard to try and game that system, and then that's what you end up spending a lot of time doing, instead of actually trying to focus on your artwork, develop good art that people like. Yeah. You're instead trying to spend a bunch of time trying to game the system, yeah. which is researching hashtags, and researching um, what is trending right now 
and where you can post the most and how you can, you know, follow for follow, like for like, those things. And it's just, it's, it's a massive time sink. And it's, it's hard, especially as an artist, because it's like, all right, well, now I have to put four hours into my social media profile and figure out what's going on to try and get this to work. Right. Or alternatively, if you have a boatload of money, you can pay and bypass all of that. Right. Which is ultimately why this is happening. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which is, yeah, it, it, particularly with Facebook. And I know Facebook owns Instagram now, too. So, you know, I get stuff a couple times a day. It's like, hey, did you know that this post could reach X amount of people for just $21 or whatnot? And and I always think it's funny when they do that post. I'm like, I'm not trying to make a single dime off of this post. So why would I do that? And But... I've heard the same thing. I mean, I have artist friends who, you know, who, who, who I've, I've worked with in, in real time before who know that I make art a lot. I post a lot of stuff and I've had a couple of people reach out to me through text and they're like, Hey, I just wanted to check to make sure everything's okay. I know you've been, you know, normally do a lot of art and I haven't seen you post anything in like six weeks. And I'm like, I've posted four things today. Like, and they're like, Oh, I, I didn't see it, you know, and they're like, how do I fix that? I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm like, other than going to my page and just looking at Turning it. Turning on notifications. Well, and I've yeah, said that too. I was like, I'm just double checking to make sure it's recording. I, like a year and a half ago, I had like a half an hour into a conversation. I hadn't hit record. So now I'm super paranoid. So I always check in like around <laughs> like 10 minutes and I'm like, yep, still recording. Okay, cool. I think, um, oh, I, I had a pretty interesting experiment last year yeah. um, with Instagram specifically. I had a personal profile um, mm-hmm. where I was posting all my artwork, mm-hmm. and um, I had converted it into a business profile. But I wanted to, I wanted to go to a more consistent branding name because, as you know having a consistent branding name across all of your things is the easiest way to get found. Um, So I wanted it to just be my name, Amy Closa. And I didn't want to give up my username by just, like, swapping. Because you can, like, apply for a new username or whatever. I didn't want to give up my username. And I was thinking about it. I was like, "Mm, there's a lot of, like, personal stuff on here that I do want to keep. And I don't necessarily want to, you know, forfeit. But I do want a place where I just post my art. And that's it. Um... So I made a new Instagram profile. And this was sometime mid-last year. Okay. Or possibly the beginning of last year. Trying to get everybody who followed my personal profile to now follow my business account was very interesting. Sure. And it wasn't necessarily because people didn't want to come follow the new account. It was just Mm -hmm. they didn't know. Sure. So, like, I'd post on... You know, I'm moving my account, can follow me. I'd get a couple people trickle in off of that. I'd follow them. They'd follow me back. A couple people trickle in, trickle in off of that. The big thing that I was just like, why is this happening? This is ridiculous to me. Was I actually paid to boost the post. Okay. Because I knew if I boosted the post, it would actually begin showing it to my friends. Right. Which is me bypassing this whole oh well if it has a lot of engagement then we'll show it right but it was weird because I paid money to show it to my friends who already followed me right it was just it really like it's all 
that kind of backhanded tactic has always left a very bitter taste in my mouth sure. in terms of social media. Sure. Um, I'm personally of the feeling that social media will be going away soon. Not necessarily going away, but it definitely has to transform in some aspect. Um, and in preparation for that, I've been trying to like build up like my emailing lists. I think that's a better and more consistent way that I can reach people. Sure. Just like, hey, subscribe to the email list if you want emails, and right. I'll email you when I post a new artwork. Right. Awesome. Like, yeah. and then if you want to engage with me, like, yeah, hop on social media and I'll talk to you. Right. Or whatever you want to do, but it's just, I think it's gonna. I don't know what it's going to evolve into, sure. but I think it's like, you know, how MySpace was it's, when Facebook came in, and yeah. now I think something else. Well, I mean, I know, you know, talking to people in their 20s, so many of them are like, oh, yeah, I don't I don't use Facebook. That's something my parents do, which oftentimes I'm like, yeah, I, that makes sense because I'm the same age as your parents, you know, give or take five years. Mm-hmm. But they're like, oh, yeah, we do Instagram. Snapchat, and then they listed a couple other things that I don't even remember because I'm like, I, I don't know what that is. I'm too old. I, I have no <laughs> idea. But I, uh, it's funny. I, I signed up for Snapchat maybe a year and a half, two years ago, and within two weeks, I was like, I deleted it off my phone because I was like, I feel way too old for this, and it's just, it's, it's silly filters and you know yeah and and i that certainly has its place just i don't really have a use for it so i deleted it and then a couple people i work with again who are younger than me like you gotta get snapchat so we can talk i was like okay so i added it back maybe two weeks ago and then it's just stupid pictures of people with cat faces and stuff like that and they're like try it i'm like no i (laughs) I don't take pictures of myself i'm just like (laughs) I was like, yeah, this is exactly what I remember. This is why I don't use it. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I'll be gone again. Personally, I started with Snapchat when it first came out, um, and it was very difficult to use on my phone. It was constantly crashing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just... I couldn't get it open fast enough to take a picture when I wanted to take a picture to send to people. Right. Um, so that was annoying. So I just eventually was like, all right, I'm done with it uninstalled it. Instagram came out with pretty much the same thing. Yep. I was like, all right, guess I don't need Snapchat anymore. Right. Um, I recently reinstalled it on my phone because of that new filter that's going around, the uh, gender swap filter, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, to find out that I look identical to my brother if I were a male. <laughs> Interesting enough, and that's but that's about it. You know, yeah. I'm like, well, you know, curiously, I know I have a Snapchat account already. Right. So. Yeah, why not? Why not play with it? Yeah, yeah. someone... Someone at work she, yesterday, she was doing it with a, to a bunch of people in the break room at lunch. She's like, "You got to try it." I was like, "Open it up and I'll do it," but I'm not. I'm not opening Snapchat to do it. And she's like, "Well, I'll do it after lunch. I got to clock back in." I was like, "Okay, you're you're the one who wants to do it. I don't really care." I was just like, "I'm sure I'm gonna look like a nightmare as a lady too." So you know, whatever. <laughs> Well, did you? Did you look like a nightmare? Oh, we didn't do it yet. We didn't oh, do it all right, yet, all right, so. all right. Stay tuned, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, maybe if I if I end up doing it, maybe I'll I'll post the picture on Instagram or something like that, and oh, no one will ever ask me to do something like that again. Right. <laughs> so, you know, talking about social media, you had the you had the whole was it, it was Kickstarter, not GoFundMe, right? Kickstarter, for the, yes. For the, for the pin, which is yes, I have one. 
on my uh, on my work sweatshirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Um, how? Like, how'd that go? Tell me about that whole process. Um, well, to start, I wanted to, I always wanted to make, like, an enamel pin. Because mm-hmm. I thought, you know, that's really cool. A lot of artists do their own enamel pins. Right. And, um, one of the problems that I was facing was that, and this is a problem that a lot of artists face, people say that they want things and then they don't buy them when you get them. Sure. So let's say, you know, oh, yeah, I will absolutely buy that print. You order five of them, and then nobody buys them, Mm -hmm. even though people have already verbally said, oh, yeah, I would totally support that, which whatever. Kickstarter is an awesome way of making sure people put their money where their mouth is. Sure. Um, And in that case, with enamel pins, when you do an order, there's a minimum order you have to place. Um, depending on the company, it could be 50, 100, 150, something like that. Right. And with that minimum order, you pay for a die fee, and then you have to order, like, 100. And in this case, the pin company that I use had a minimum order of 100, and I was like, I do not want to be stuck with 100 enamel pins. Sure. So, I was like, all right, well, this is something that I've wanted to do. I've priced it out. I've, you know, I have a couple of designs in mind. And I saw a lot of artists do fun pins on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And the more I thought about it, I was like, is this worthy of Kickstarter? Would this something like this be worthy of Kickstarter? And then I saw all of these artists who do these great, amazing Kickstarters. Right. And I was like, this is a really good platform to do it. Because I'm not looking to profit off of it necessarily. Right. I'm just trying to fund making this right and deliver a cool product that I've always wanted to, to do mm-hmm. um, and so it was really it was really nice to like finally launch it on Kickstarter and I did get a little bit of pushback from like my family members who were like what why would why is this Kickstarter worthy which I then had to explain well I'm not asking for donations right. which is the difference between Kickstarter and GoFundMe yep. I'm not asking for donations I'm looking to promise and deliver a product if I get funded all or nothing which is nice Sure. again money where your mouth is Right. so um, yeah I mean I launched it and we we got funded um, I think it was 20 no, I think it was closer to 30. It was like 33 pins we had sold through Kickstarter. Um, and it was, yeah, I mean, it went pretty smoothly. And then, you know, I placed the order, got yeah. the order in, shipped them all out, and that was that. Like, yeah. it was just, it was actually a pretty interesting, pleasant experience. And yeah. I got to actually talk to and meet a bunch of people in the Blade Runner fandom. Nice. And they were so nice. <laughs> Let me tell you, like, I was posting on Reddit about, you know, the launch of this and reaching out to a couple of Blade Runner fan groups to see if anybody wanted to, like, help me out and repost it to kind of get the word out. Right. Um, And people were like, yeah, absolutely. I'll absolutely do that for you, and I'm going to buy a pin, too, and all this stuff. And I was like, that's amazing. That's amazing. I was not expecting that response. At worst, I was expecting to be ignored. Right. You know? Um, But they were just beyond nice and... Yeah. It was very interesting, and I mean, I could definitely see myself kickstarting another pin in the future. Nice. Um, or based off of, I think I still have like 50 or 60 pins left. Yeah. Um, based off of those, 
whatever sales go from those, I could probably just fund another pin. Sure. Maybe do like an origami unicorn or that, an origami chicken to go with it. Well, that was the thing when I, when I, when I got the package, you know, there was the origami unicorn sticker in there. And it's funny because I'm like, I'm always thinking about like next tattoo. And I had thought about the origami unicorn for a while, um, which would make, you know, a third unicorn tattoo. I already have two <laughs> unicorn tattoos, but uh, um, I, I, like, what made you decide to do the sheep as the pin instead of the unicorn? Um, the unicorn is actually available. You can po- purchase it off of Amazon, I think, off of some oh, Chinese gotcha. suppliers for like $7. And you. I can't compete with a $7 sure. price point um, for something that's already available. Sure. So... Um, I was like, all right, let me look around and see if anybody's done the sheep yet. Because Blade Runner 2049 is still relatively new in sure. terms of the, you know, the cult film world. Um, and nobody had done the origami sheep yet. And I think it's a little more... It's certainly subtler. It's not as immediately recognizable. But I also feel like that's, in a way, really sort of... If you're wearing it, sort of differentiate you and let you know that like yeah I'm, I'm a big Blade Runner fan I've got the you know because it's only I I've mean, watched 2049 like five times well because <laughs> I've had to explain I've had to explain to a couple people who have seen it but only saw it once they're like that's from that movie I was just like yeah it's the one scene with Gaff when he's it's a pretty iconic at, scene I mean is. Gaff in the, the retirement home there. yeah and it's one of those things that I've explained to people you know because I saw that movie four times in the theater and I was just like that's like 12 hours that I dedicated in a dark room <laughs> watching that movie but I was like if you go back and watch it uh, a couple times literally every single thing that Gaff says to Agent K has like two meanings and it like harkens back to the first film and it's just it's it's such a it's such a great film or it's such a great scene in the film and so many people like if you're only have like a cursory understanding of the universe you're like it's kind of a throwaway scene I'm like it's really not (laughs) right right yeah right yeah my father was my father's also a big Blade Runner fan and he was like I want the chicken yeah I'm like, all right, well, that, maybe that'll, that'll be, be my cool. next one. Yeah. Um, we'll see. But then there's also the little matchstick man. Yeah. I don't I feel like people probably have already done it. I've never around. seen that. I've also, uh, it's funny because I was immediately, like, after seeing the film a couple times, I was trying to find, like, a reproduction of the horse from 2049, yes, the okay. wooden horse. Couldn't find it anywhere. Like, I almost, I almost broke down a bottom bottle of the, the Johnny Walker, the Blade Runner stuff, but I think it was like $150 mm-hmm. for the bottle, and I'm like, I'm never going to drink it, <laughs> so I can't really justify right. you know, that kind of like, I mean, you know, I, I I have a bottle of wine that Maynard James Keenan signed years ago that I, I didn't open, but I, I made the mistake of leaving it in storage over a winter and so it opened itself but I still have the bottle I mean luckily because it was an old school it actually had a cork in it but it you know the cork just pushed out okay so it pushed out yeah so it didn't break (laughs) yeah yeah but uh and I think that was a I think that was a $25 bottle of wine and yeah uh, yeah. just normally they're like 25 bucks yeah yeah I would love to have reproduction of that horse though yeah, that would be amazing. I gotta find somebody that's making those, or I might have to make one. Right. Well, <laughs> it's so interesting for 
it's such a, you know, it's such a, I mean, I guess it's a franchise now. Uh, There's very little merchandise available from it. I mean, NECA put out these okay action figures last year. Somebody somebody sent me the the Rick Deckard, the... uh, the Agent K and the I forget Jared Leto's character's name, but the, yeah, they sent me the figures of them as like a thank you for some commission work that I did, and they look beautiful, but they're not really like great. They're not like McFarlane toys level quality. Well, <laughs> they're very Neca is very they make very brittle things. Mm-hmm. Like I opened it up, and like as soon as I opened the box. Jared Leto's arm fell off, oh, and I was no. just like, I mean, it, it snapped back on, but it's just like, they just sit on my mantle, and just like, they're, you know, but especially, like, I get back in the day, because even though Blade Runner is, certainly has a huge cult status, and it's influenced, you know, 30 years of science fiction, it was not a hit when it came out. Mm-mm. I mean, it took a while for it to even break even. And that's the thing, too, like, with Blade Runner 2049, like, it was a box office bomb. Like, it didn't make money. But all of the reviewers were like, see this movie. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. The thing the thing that really grinds my gears about Blade Runner 2049 was the fact that it, it came out around the time of one of the Star Wars movies. Was it the last... It was... It was one of them. It was a little before that. It was in in October, and then I think November is when the Star Wars one came out? December. December, okay. Yeah, because it came out the day after my 41st birthday. Okay. Um, So it came out around, decently around the same time period, but it came out before. People were complaining that the movie was too long. Right. At three hours. Yeah. but I saw both films. Star Wars was also three hours long, or yeah. close to three hours long. And Blade Runner 2049 was a better expenditure of time. For sure. You didn't even know. Like, watching that movie, you would never know that it was three hours long because it's so engrossing and the storyline's so good and there's such a slow grind as you're going along. I'm like, it doesn't feel like you've right. been in the theater for three hours. Star Wars felt like I was in the theater for five hours. Right. I was like, when is this movie going to end? <laughs> well, and I think that, you know, you're absolutely right, and that actually speaks a lot to just just the simple fact that, you know, this isn't even really a matter of opinion. It's just a matter of, as far as craft goes, uh, Blade Runner 2049 is a better film than The Last Jedi was, and... You know, I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, and there are things that I loved about The Last Jedi. There's also things that I couldn't stand about it. And I think a lot, I mean, like the whole thing on the on the casino planet was just like, uh, it just felt like the prequels to me. And I was also like, all right, get back to the story that I care about. I don't care about any of this. Where, yeah, with 2049, I'm engrossed the entire, the entire, uh, length of the story. I mean, after seeing it three times, like the third time in the theater, I did notice myself kind of tuning out a little. The only time that I tune out in Blade Runner 2049 is, uh, I don't even know, I I can't even say this is a spoiler, because if you haven't seen the movie, you're not going to have any context, but there's like basically the fight uh, on the dam 
in the car, like, on, as the water's rising, like, mm-hmm. that thing is, like, the only time where I'm like, yeah, okay, it, it's going to be a fight scene for the next ten minutes, <laughs> and, like, which is funny, because with all the superhero movies, they all have the, what I call the lights in the sky moment at the end, where right. the world's about to end unless we get the thing to the thing in time, and usually... But that was 2049's Roy Batty moment. I right, feel. exactly, exactly. Yeah. But I, I also didn't feel like... It didn't quite have the emotional payoff that no. you know that the you know the tears in the rain speech and everything does. But right, but the, by the end of the film, you know that whole thing where he's on the steps mm-hmm. that kind of does. You know, oh, that's sure. like a for whole. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I uh, I don't know. I I think in general we don't go to the theater at all the way we used to. I personally think that. It was just there. There's only been one Blade Runner movie, right? And the people who did go see the Blade Runner movie are deeply engrossed in the fandom, or knew of it and loved that movie for the original older fans. Um, I don't think it was necessarily, oh, um, we don't want to go sit through a three-hour movie. That's what a lot of people were saying. They were complaining about. But Avengers Endgame was also three hours long, and you can see that that is, like, one of the top grossing films yeah. of all time. It's currently the second highest grossing film of all time. Yes, yeah. so it's like, it's not that people won't sit through a three-hour-long movie. It's the way that it's marketed. You know, right. there was oh, ten absolutely. movies prior to Endgame to basically gather up all of these fans yep. that would then go see it for Endgame and sit right. through three hours' worth of movie, um, whereas Blade Runner only had that one film. And it's not geared towards children. You can't right. bring a kid to go see it. I mean, you could. Right. They're not going to understand anything. Yeah, There's no action bored. going on. They'll right. be bored, you know? So it's well, like the audience, I guess it was kind of marketed towards a niche audience. And that's kind of either people who are fans of the original um, and also people who like the massive amount of really great artistic, technical aspects and right. things like that put into the film. For sure. Which... I mean, if you looked at a Venn diagram of those people, it's like, it's almost just a complete circle. It's <laughs> yeah. a lot of the same people, but also that's only a finite number of people going. And I think most of those people did go see it, but again, yeah, reaching out to a larger audience. And I think marketing wise, particularly in the United States, they really were counting solely on the nostalgia of the original film. And I'm like, yeah, but the mass public never bit into this movie it's you know it's developed a a cult following but also because i when i have friends now who haven't seen the original blade runner or i've heard it's amazing i should check it out i try and tell them like you gotta understand something if you're seeing blade runner for the first time now in 2019 i'm like it's not an action film despite what trailers may look yeah it's exactly what it is i'm like it's a you know, fairly realistic science fiction setting, but it's a film noir story. It's mm-hmm. slow moving. There's maybe three action scenes in the mm-hmm. whole movie, and it's a two and a half hour film. You know, the the twenty forty nines, you know, three hours. I'm like, it's it's slow moving. It's it's really a character study more than anything else. True. And I was like, and it won't leave you with, you know, it'll leave you with questions, not with, you know, this is how it ended. Um, 
Although, you know, the first time I watched the original Blade Runner, I didn't like it. Yeah. I was like, what, what is this? I didn't either. I hated it. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, oh. Well, I did not, so I wasn't allowed to watch Blade Runner when I was a kid. Understandably, it's an R-rated film. Uh, but, you know, it came out, uh, you know, I really wanted to see it because it's a movie with Han Solo in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I read the Marvel Comics adaptation of it. Uh, and so I knew the basic story, but it's, you know, it's it's a truncated, it's probably a 60-page comic book. Uh, so they leave a lot out and a lot of the nuance and, you know, a lot of the, the cinematography. You, you're not, it doesn't translate it, yeah, to a comic book. Yeah. Particularly artwork done in the 1980s in a mainstream comic company. So when I saw it, it's a different thing altogether. And I was like, oh, this movie's really boring. <laughs> uh, which is all the, st- like, so much of what I appreciate it now that it's like, it takes its time, but also just the amount of work, like handcrafted work that goes into oh, thank you. that went into creating that entire oh, nice world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I, I mean, I was amazed when I found out 2049 that all the cityscapes those were all miniature they're not yeah it's all practical effects yeah which is unheard of in this day Mm -hmm. and age um Mm -hmm. it's just amazing um so that actually that's a good sort of segue to what i was going to talk to you about um because you're primarily a digital artist Mm -hmm. and i remember it's a few months ago might have been longer but there was and correct the details because I'm a little bit fuzzy, but there was art, like a gallery showing that you had been part of before and it had changed and basically they weren't allowing you to be in it because you were a digital artist. Is that that's right. And this is a common, this is a common thread um, that happens in the art world. Um, Yeah, so it was a show that I had done I want to say for three years and it was taken over by new ownership or new leadership and they had decided to bar photography and digital art of any kind um, which was just interesting um, to say the least because a lot of artists nowadays do digital art Mm. and when I say a lot I mean the majority of Mm -hmm. artists do digital art but there's like this weirdness in the fine art world um, where they're like, digital art isn't fine art. Illustration isn't fine art. Mm-hmm. Um, which just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> because it's like, how do you think concept artists are drawing up these things for movies, for video games, for mm-hmm. comic books, for, or even making the comic books or coloring the comic books? You know, right. we're not taking out colored pencils and, you know, paints to do these things. Um, and it's funny because I feel like the people who say these things are misinformed over digital art and how it's created. Sure. Um, because I did have another person who was looking for artists to put up art somewhere. Um, and when I bit at this and said, oh yeah, you know, I do this, here's my portfolio, I do digital art. Yeah. Um, they were like, well, I don't want any computer generated blah, blah, blah not computer generated Um, a lot of people think that there's you can pretty much feed in a description into a computer press 
play and it will generate out a picture for you. Yeah. In which case it's just maybe in the future that will be the case. Sure. Maybe you could feed in something to like Google Deep Dream. Um, and it will spit out something hopefully not horrifying. Right. Um, but <laughs> otherwise, um, all of these things are created with brushstrokes. Yeah. Particularly my art, um, I don't... I generally don't use a lot of, like, photography and other people's things. Some people, some digital artists will, especially concept artists for time constraints, they'll bring in photographic elements and then, you know, either paint over them or use them in the actual image, which is fine. I mean, as long as the image is Creative Commons, licensed properly for you to use that way. Um, But I personally draw all my things. Um, And any photographic elements I use I use from my own photography yeah um so the things that I use are made by me um I'm not bringing in a picture of a mountain and then tracing the mountain right. you know, I'm maybe referencing it looking at it right. but not necessarily oh okay I'm just pasting in this mountain mm-hmm. so I'm a little bit more of a purist in that sort of sense um, because I think it's important to be able to reproduce that stuff for your artistic brain to grow. For sure, um, for sure. So then you can look at it and go, now I know what a mountain looks like, now I know how to draw a mountain. Right. Um, rather than just cut it out, paste it in, and you haven't learned anything. There, I have a mountain. Yeah, yeah there, I have a mountain, yeah. but I haven't learned anything. So, yeah, it's very interesting um, that whole fine art galleries and things like that think of digital art so lowly yeah um but i don't know if it's just because of the reproducible nature of digital art or if some other reason or i'm not 100 percent sure it's interesting because and i can't remember i might have shared this with you or might not have i you know being uh, an artist myself, one who you know, I, I pretty much exclusively uh, do you know, paint or drawing. Um, I myself certainly had a um, a prejudice uh, about digital art for a long time, and what actually caused me to change was I had um, a, a friend who's who's also an illustrator, a comic writer, and she posts stuff on Instagram a lot. And, you know, she, she lived in, in Portsmouth, uh, and then she moved to Washington, D.C., so I would only see her stuff uh, on Instagram and stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's a very... She, she does a lot of comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at one point, I had reached out to her about showing some stuff at, you know, at a group show, and she's like, oh, I'd have to figure out, I, you know, I don't have anything set up to print right now, and I was just like, well, you can show the originals even if they're not, for she's like, what do you mean? And through this conversation, because I didn't know that she was creating these comics completely digitally, um, because a lot of it looks like watercolor, and so, you know, because you can, as you know, you can do so many things with digital, and I was like, wait, some of your stuff is is digital? It's done on a computer? She's like, everything. That I, All I, of it. <laughs> and I was like, really? And so, and I actually had a moment 
you know, for, probably for about 10, 15 minutes where I was just sort of like, felt like I had my legs kicked out from under <laughs> yeah. me and was like caught off guard. And I was like, okay, so if I didn't realize that, and this is someone whose art I really appreciated, uh, it's like, it has nothing to do with the art itself. It has to do with my emotional attachment to the idea of it. And I was like, okay, so what is it? And it, I didn't figure it out that day, but it's for me, I know the uh, a feeling that I had about digital art when I, uh, a lot of it was what you were saying where I was just like, oh, you can just throw something in. And I was like, but that's really deep down. If I were to be honest with myself, was not it. For me, it was more, and usually anything I have such a knee-jerk reaction to, it's based in fear on mm-hmm. my part. And what it was was, for me, it's like, well, if I acknowledge this as a quote-unquote legitimate form of art, and it's something that I don't understand how to do, I either, A, am never going to be able to do it, and therefore I'm afraid that someone will say, I'm not as good as so-and-so or so-and-so, or B, if I want to learn how to do that, I'm going to have to put in some real work to learn something I don't already know, and... You know, I know my own nature is to be lazy. So it's easier for me in my mind to, to, you know, categorize it as not real art rather than, oh, no, that's something that I don't have the ability to do. And that's okay, too, because there's, you know, people who blow glass, for instance. That's not something that I have any even concept of how to do. And I have tremendous respect for but I don't know how to do it. And it's not something that's, you know, it's not a discipline that, I've done anything with, but, but, you know, of course I wouldn't be good at it starting off, you know, so it's one of those things that I was like, all right, I need to let go of my own ideas about that because there's plenty of amazing art that was created on a computer that, Mm -hmm. you know, speaks to me, Mm -hmm. so it has nothing to do with Mm -hmm. that medium as well, I mean, and I think I knew from the beginning that all the art that I'd seen that you'd made was digital, so it it wasn't even a matter of, oh, well, I like this Right. And it's computer. It's just like no. It's I like it. Right. So right. I was like, it's kind of it's kind of a ridiculous thing, and the same thing with photography because a lot of uh, you know a lot of people that I know who had made a living or a partial living doing photography in the past, you know, lament the fact that well, everyone has a camera on their phone now, so my, my job is eliminated. And I'm like, well, yeah, everyone has access to that but I mean doesn't make them a good spot yeah I mean (laughs) everyone can go to you know staples and buy pencils that doesn't make them an artist Mm -hmm. like you it's it's what you're doing with it and Mm -hmm. it's you know and again you know art speaks to different people in different ways that's what's amazing about art Mm -hmm. so yeah but it's it to me I always get like I scrunch up my knuckles when I get really frustrated when art institutions, art organizations start putting restrictions mm-hmm. on what is art and what isn't or, or what they value versus what they don't uh, because that's like the amazing thing about art is it can be made from anything exactly, exactly and as the world turns and mm-hmm. continues onward, we're going to have new ways to make art. And yeah. it's just, that's just the way that it's going to be. I mean, 
I think it's just important to note that digital art is just another medium. It's right. it's just digital art is this tube of paint, you know? Right. It's the same thing, you yeah. know? You can draw. If you went and you picked up my tablet pen, you would still be able to draw. Right. It's just in a different medium. Right. It's got a little bit of a learning curve sure. because, you know, say the stylus on screen feels different than pencil on paper or... You know, you have to learn where the tools are. Okay, how do I change my color? How do I get it to look this way or feel For this sure. way or whatever? But it's just a different medium. It's yeah. just, that's literally all it is. You still have to know how to do what you're doing. Absolutely. You have to know how to realistically shade something so it fits in the space. Right. And if you don't know how to do that, the computer's not going to help you do it. Right. right. It's still, you know, if you can only draw a stick figure you can only draw a stick figure but on a computer. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. it's not the tools that necessarily change <laughs> that necessarily change what you're doing. Um, you know, tools can assist you but if you still don't know what you're doing. It's just, it's like anything. It's like when people are like, oh, well, I want to get a tablet because they've had a mouse and they've been doing digital art with a mouse if mm-hmm. you still don't know how to do it right. the tablet's not going to make you any better it's right. going to help facilitate making it but just like in glass blowing oh I want I need a bigger torch I need this crazy $3,000 torch well if you don't know how to use it it's not going to help you out at all right. you know it's sure it's going to make melting glass faster and easier but it's not yeah. If you don't know how to do an implosion, you don't know how to do an implosion. Right. Sorry. Um, you have to learn it still. You have to learn the basics. Yeah. Um, so your your significant other is mm-hmm. also an artist. Yes. What uh, I've I was, I was gonna say I've never been in that position. That's not a hundred percent true, but I've haven't really been in a relationship where I've been creating art at the same time that. You know, a, a, a partner was doing that. How, like, what's that like? I mean, can you talk about that? Do you do you inspire each other? Do you want to wring each other's necks sometimes? Probably <laughs> column A, column A, <laughs> column A, column B. I mean, you know, anything. Yeah. Relationship is going to be like that. Um, but it's just such a different medium sure. that it's hard to trans. Like, I can draw something and be like can you make this? Um, But it's just such a different medium that it's very hard to bring something from my world into his world. Sure. Um, I mean, I can kind of doodle things to be like, hey, what if we made a pendant like this? And then he can kind of translate those into the glass medium. But, um, you know, it's not, again, can't say print glass (laughs) so unfortunately that would be fun um but he's got a he's more of a sculptor than he is of say a drawing artist Mm. he's definitely sculpts and pushes and pulls and with glass you know you have a limited amount of time to do that for sure for sure all the things that come with that and the colors are entirely different too like you can't just pick up a blue and expect to have a blue. Right. Because once you put that in a flame and get, you know, it hot enough, it can change sure. to a different color. It could yeah. be brown. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you can kind of experiment and figure it out along the way, but none of the colors are... Well, some of them are. Not all of them, though. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of... 
interesting because like you pay, you buy a tube of paint at the store that's red. You expect that tube of paint. It's to most be likely red. gonna be red when it's you open. It's gonna it. be red when you open. Yeah. Glass. It's like okay. Here's this red. Let me read the tag on it now. Is it a striking color? Is it, you know, do I, how do I have to treat this color? Yeah. What does it come out to look like in the end? Yeah. A lot of experimentation. Yeah. It's interesting. I, um, I mean, one of the things that I loved about being in the wrong brand space was sharing a space with other artists. Mm-hmm. But I found when there was two or more of us there, I'd spend a lot of time talking to the other artists, but not actually making a whole lot of it. Because I usually am very like, well, and and it's funny because, you know, our mutual friend, Sam Paolini, oftentimes would would chime in sort of, sort of good-naturedly, sort of passive-aggressively. She's like, you sure do like to talk a lot when there's other people there. But, But I also know that, you know, some people, they work their best and solitude and I mean that was certainly my case there because I would oftentimes be there during the daytime and end up talking to other artists but when I actually had a project that I had a deadline for that I needed to do I'd usually pop in (laughs) at one in the morning and work till four or five in the morning Mm -hmm. but I don't know I I personally kind of get my creative battery recharged by being around the others being around yeah. other yeah and interacting with other creative people right. but it's interesting because I don't usually talk to other painters illustrators about how mm-hmm. they do it it's more I think hearing someone's like best practices for like how they make time to actually you know like their routines mm-hmm. and um when they're inspired, how they put that into action. Uh, and it's funny because, and it's not just limited to artists, it's, you know, musicians, dancers, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Um, I mean, I think I probably have gotten more best practices for my own art from, like, musician friends than from other artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also interesting talking to people who I know can draw but like I just never have the inspiration to do it and I'm like that's you know because I I produce a lot of art and people are like oh, I wish I had the creativity that you do and I was like I'll, like it's like 95% not creativity it's right. just putting pencil to paper uh-huh. you know putting so hand to tablet yeah because yeah. it's you, you got to exercise the muscles to mm-hmm. sort of develop that that's and true I, I also one of the things that was really tough, but I do all the time now, is I pretty much post everything that I create, mm-hmm. uh, regardless if I... If you think it's successful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or even if I like... I mean, there's some stuff, especially with, like, Facebook does their, hey, here's your post from two years mm-hmm. ago, and I'll see stuff, I'm like, oh my god, I can't <laughs> believe I've shown that to the public. <laughs> but Embarrassed. it's great... To see progress, but also be like, okay, so two years ago, I was really, I was strong with this and this. It's interesting to see the progress with, you know, shading or, you know, um, but it also is taken so much of the ego out of, oh, this is amazing. It's just, it it, it is what it is. It's all work in progress. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've really been enjoying the, uh, you've been posting work in progress of the, the, 
I forget the word you use. It's a merman, but uh, merman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with the net over him, yes. and just seeing just the incredible amount of work that's going into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and, and I know in a couple of those posts, you had even commented about you know, like, you know, why cover up something I've uh, I've put all this work mm-hmm. into, but it's you know. It, it's becoming like this incredibly realistic looking fantastical thing and it's it's awesome watching the, the progress of that oh thank you yeah um, yeah it's just with digital art especially and this is something I've learned throughout the years is that because you work on a layer system right um, you can take things away and add things without affecting things beneath them right. so it's like having transparencies on top of each other yeah um, but in having that, you need to ensure that you are creating complete objects and not just doing, like, for example, if there's, you know, a sphere on a table, you want to make sure you draw the entire table and right. the entire sphere because you don't know what you're going to do with it. You don't know if you're going to need to, like, move it right. 12 pixels to the left or if maybe you change your mind while you're working on it and something's going to change. So you end up putting all this incredible amount of detail into stuff that is never even seen. Right. Um, like you said, in the case of the net. Um, but I did end up modifying that a little bit because yeah. I was like, this is a lot of really nice detail that kind of informs, like, what kind of material this merman siren is made out of Right. Um, that I would like to be viewed by the viewer. So right. I did end up modifying that net to kind of show a little bit less. But right. it was just an interesting, like, I had a reference photo that I saw, and I was like, this is perfect for like a merman right. being stuck in a net situation and the net care, like actually covered a lot of it and I had to make up a lot of the anatomy that was underneath um, yep. and then when I finally did put the net on I was like ah, not quite what I was going for uh, it is but it isn't right. so it's like now you have to find like the middle ground where it's like okay well where does it fit my original vision and right. where does it fit the vision of where it's going Sure. Or the final final product. Well, that's. I've had this. Uh, I've had this conversation with a bunch of you know, particularly visual artists, um, about you get an idea in your head of mm-hmm. what you want to create, and for me, oftentimes, I'll get a quick flash of what something will look like as a finished thing, and it, it's never. It never when comes you, out the same. Yeah, once it's done, it never looks quite the same. And that was frustrating for a long time until I sort of... And there, there, there's this Allen Ginsberg quote, which used to drive me nuts. And a few years ago, I looked at it like... It, it, I, I came across it again, and I looked at it in a completely different light. And the quote is, once the idea has left your head, it's already been compromised. Mm-hmm. Which, when I first heard it in my you know late teens, first read it in my late teens, I was like, well... Why even bother if it's you're not going to do it? And then uh, later in life, it to me was more like a letting myself off the hook that you're never going to quite get out right. how it looks in your head. But the way, like say, the way I look at this wall here, it looks yellow to me. But you might look at it and see that there's you know orangish red highlights and brown and if we were to describe it in two words, I might describe it completely different than you would. And we're seeing the world through different filters, but Mm -hmm. it's, that's okay. Like Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that's the thing too, is like, if I'm looking at something in the physical world that I've created, it might be different than how I saw it in my head, but it came through the filter of me, you mm-hmm. know, I'm the, so it, you're that, inserting your personality exactly along the way yeah. in the journey. Yeah. So it's like, you can imagine something and I think it's funny because you can probably imagine it in, say, a different person's artistic style. Sure. Because I've done this, but I'm like, okay, well, I want this to be painterly. I never make anything painterly. Everything I make is, like, super smooth and very, like, blended and finished and sharp edges, all this stuff. But, like, I'm always like, oh, yeah should have like a painterly finish you know lots of like globs of textural and stuff like that and it's never gonna go like I'm not not fooling myself like I know I'm never gonna make anything like that because that's just not how I create things and I have to like all right well here's how I imagined it this is as close as I can come sure through myself my own personality and my own artistic style I guess I would call it what I can create that is close enough to this other person's, my vision that lined up with the way this other person does it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, usually in my head, it's it's almost always a Bill Sienkiewicz or Dave McKean. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, like, my art doesn't look like either of those right. guys at all. But, like, for the longest time, I was like, oh, someone's just going to bust me one day. And, like, you're trying to rip off these dudes. <laughs> and, and luckily, my... The, the way I create art is so different than mm-hmm. that. It, it, there's, you know, I don't think of, even if telling someone that, someone would be like, well, what are you talking about? Your stuff doesn't look anything like theirs. But mm-hmm. that's, that's usually how I see it in my head. inspiration point? Yeah, for sure. So you're basically taking them and then you're just saying file, filter, yep. Scott David Chase. Right. Well, I, I just look at it as like the idea, the, the, the raw image that's in my head is like, coffee grounds using the coffee shop analogy and then you know pouring the the water is you know my own stuff mm-hmm. and then what comes out the the cup of coffee is hopefully at least palatable <laughs> to, to someone else to be like all right well it tastes a little like those grounds smelled so you know, <laughs> i don't know yeah i guess i can see it yeah we're just we're, we're i'm just a paper filter to right, be right. thrown away <laughs> Funny. <laughs> so, uh, a very important question for you. Yes. Is Rick Deckard a replicant? That's a hard one to answer. I know. That's a very hard one to answer. I, 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 I don't ask. They don't, they, didn't, they don't answer it at all. They don't even address it. No, I'm asking what you all. think. Um, yes. Yes, I do think so. Um, and have you read the book? that it is based off. Dan stream of electric yes, sheep. Yes. 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 And Which is like, a very, it's very, very different, different. It's I mean, very different than the actual yeah. the Blade Runner film. So different. And I and I love both of them in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things where I, I will say to people because so many people when a when a movie comes out based on a book, they're like, oh well, it's so different. It's it's, it's different. Not, it's, it's a, I'm like it's a different medium. It's a different medium. Yeah, and it's you can't talk what somebody's thinking in their head in a movie. I mean, you could do a voiceover. But right. Good luck. And the the sort of illustration that I point to is because because they are different mediums, and you have to cut stuff out to make a two hour film, two and a half hour film. Mm-hmm. Unlike even the Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson trilogy, which are 
hugely epic, monstrous film. You know, the the extended editions are about four to four hours apiece. Even those had to cut stuff out of the Lord of the Rings to. How fit do you it. tell a book right in a, four hours? Right, like especially those books right. they're very long. I mean, it's one thing you have a two hundred page book, right, and you're gonna maybe you could read it in six hours, right. But, but the flip side of that is, look at his Hobbit trilogy, which I don't know how you feel about them, but I thought they were horrible, and they're incredibly boring, and that has everything from the book in it. So it's like, you can do that sort of thing, but it's not is a great film. Yeah. yeah, and it's it, they're, different, they're different mediums. But there are certain films that can pull it off. Yeah. Like Sin City was pretty much frame for frame, but that's also based off of a comic, which sure. is different because they've already got all of these visual elements drawn out for them. And I would not argue, but I would sort of like my input on that is I feel like the power of why Sin City, or at least the first Sin City film works, is the original source material is so much more visual mm-hmm. like that's the selling point more than the actual story happening right. yeah it's interesting but it's the stark black and white and the the, you know, the, the small uses of color here mm-hmm. and there and uh, you know particularly Frank Miller's style of drawing uh, translated well to to, yeah. to, to film because uh, I mean I'm a huge fan of, like, I really like a lot of Frank Miller's writing, but I'm actually a, an even bigger fan of his his art style. Mm-hmm. And DC Comics, for as much as people bitch about um, the, the DC universe, the films, uh, which, you know, I would agree with most of it. Um, <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> they've done a lot of direct-to-video adaptations of graphic novels and right. so on and so forth. But they did a uh, Batman The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Returns. Um, I thought you were going to bring up The Killing Joke. I'm like, the, the, oh, <laughs> We can talk about that in a second. No, The Dark Knight Returns, uh, they got the story perfectly, but it's, they use a very same, sameness to all the artwork in all of those, so Batman looks the same across all of them, and it doesn't look like The Dark Knight Returns, and it's a very, like, homogenized, where... Frank Miller's artwork is very gritty, very mm-hmm. dirty. A lot of times, like, there's not clean lines. You know, there'll be a close-up of someone's hand, and you'll see, like, a pen stroke that's hanging off of right. it. And, like, I love that about it. Mm-hmm. It's a very, like, it looks like he couldn't even slow himself down it's enough visceral, to... Yeah, yeah, it's just, and it's... It, it's, it's like somebody it's, gave this guy a Sharpie, and he just Yeah, to like, him. you got ten minutes to get this entire <laughs> panel done, and he's like, here, this is this is what I got. I got the... You get the impression of the action that's happening, but it's it's not a perfect visual, which to me makes it perfect. But then, in their animated thing, it's it looks the same as all the others, and it's very clean lines. And I'm like, oh, that, it loses something in the You're translation. The personality away from it. Yeah, and I mean, they definitely did that with the Killing Joke, and also that because it's a short graphic novel. It's I don't know, it's thirty, forty pages. Which doesn't translate to an hour-long film, so they added this ridiculous Batgirl pro, which completely changes the dynamic of Bruce Wayne's relationship with her. And uh, uh, yeah, what what did you think about? I mean, that? the the text was problematic to begin with. Mm-hmm. We already know that. Um, yeah. There is obvious problems with that and mm-hmm. Alan Moore's writing. Um, mm-hmm. 
because everybody's aware of it. It's been there for years and years and years. Right. And then they just took that and compounded it by yeah. adding what they did to yeah. that cinematic, yeah, animated thing. And it was just—I don't think they knew what they were doing when they did it. They were like, "Oh, we're going to make this more interesting," but. Right. The people who were writing it were not the right people to make it more interesting sure. and ended up flipping it into what can very, very much be perceived as a really sexist and just gross addition that was not necessary. Sure. So maybe somebody, maybe there's a fan recut out there right. that possibly makes it a little true to the comics or sure. better. Um, where they just kind of cut out all that crap that isn't necessarily good. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean, just from taking away everything that you were just saying, just taking into account a storytelling point of view, it's completely disjointed from the rest of it. But mm-hmm. yeah, and it's, I mean, I, I was I was a little surprised when they had announced that they were going to adapt Killing Joke into an animated feature, anyways, because dark subject matter because uh, it is fairly sexist and also the fact that you know there's you know there's there's sexual trauma and there's sexual abuse with arguably this DC's second most famous iconic character uh, I was surprised that they were releasing it as an animated fi- animated film but you know I think DC has shown that they're they're not great with uh, necessarily decision making, at least currently. You know, and it's funny because they there's not a whole lot of DC things. It's it's sad because they've got all these really great IPs, right? But they're not producing quality content, and that's really sad. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure the my most favorite like TV adaptation um, was Hellblazer, mm-hmm. John Constantine, um, and they canceled that. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was a little more true to life than than the movie yeah. ever was. Um, I enjoyed both. I enjoyed the comics thoroughly, um, but that got canceled. Um, Gotham, I thought that show was a mess. Um, I didn't. I I think I maybe saw two or three. It's episodes. very. He loves it. Um, it's very campy. It's extremely campy. I liked it at the beginning, and yeah. then it just got really ridiculous, and I was like, uh, I can't do this anymore. Um, it forced me to sit through the rest of it. It's ending soon, thankfully. Right. I just <laughs> saw uh, John Wick 3 yesterday, and... Uh, How was that? So I really liked the I, first two. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I was talking to a coworker about this yesterday because he asked me what I thought, and he's like, "He's like, how was it? How was it?" And I was like, "Well, it was exactly what I expected it to be, with zero surprises, which to me ultimately is disappointing because I like the first John Wick was kind of its own thing, and then they took a turn with the second one, which I found interesting because they expanded the world that they had sort of hinted at in that, and this nothing new." And it's it's immediately set up for a fourth film, and which I'm sure they'll do. I'm sure this is going to make a lot of money, and I don't have any, you know, ill will towards it. I didn't hate it. I was entertained. It was enjoyable. 
Yeah, but, but it, was, it was not. It just felt like it was spinning its, it's wheels. It's not going to knock Endgame off. Oh, no, not, not <laughs> at all. Anyway, and it was also form. just like, it felt like, okay, this is level three in a video game where right. you go through all this stuff and then there's a final boss at the end and then our hero gets to, you know, take a breath and you're like, oh, but look what's right around the corner. And you're like, okay, I'll get ready. And it, I, I mean, and I'm happy for Keanu. I like, I... He was the brunt of jokes for a long time about acting, and I think he's, he's a fine actor. He's certainly developed in, into uh, certainly a serviceable actor. Mm-hmm. You know, he's better in some stuff than others, but also just, like, he seems, from every th- interview I've read with him, everything I've seen about him, like, he seems like a really good a fantastic guy. person. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, yeah, if he can have another franchise and, you know, he enjoys doing it, mm-hmm. awesome. And it's... He, the guy who directs him used to be his stunt double, and it's so you know it's a stunt man making that leap to making feature films. I'm like, that's great, it's awesome. I've I've got no problem with it. I just it felt kind of hollow to me, does and that's for it, does me. Does it feel kind of like where all of the Mission Impossible films are, where it's just like, okay, here's the next action blockbuster. Well, I had an interesting experience with the Mission Impossible where I hadn't seen any of them mm-hmm. until the new one came out like as it was coming out and that one looked interesting to me because I, I don't like I'm I'm not a Tom Cruise fan. Mm-hmm. There are certain Tom Cruise films that I appreciate mm-hmm. but as far as like and one of my, <laughs> yeah, one of my best friends that's his favorite actor and he loves all the Mission Impossible so I decided the week leading up to the new one because I wanted to see the new one I would watch all of them in order. So I was basically watching like one a night. And I actually thought that franchise got better as it got along. Because first one, the technology is definitely dated. And I was right. like, yep, okay, you know, it's 18 years later and we still don't have some of this. And a lot of it looks ridiculous. And then the second one, you know, the, the John Woo one, which is the one that pretty much everyone hates. Uh, it's just, I was like, Ugh, I don't know if I want to continue with this franchise. But I went through the third one and I was like, all right, it's doing interesting things. I liked it, but it, it does definitely have that sort of episodic feel to it where it doesn't feel like a single film, like an artistic statement. It's just the next installment in this ongoing thing. John Wick 3 was the first time where it felt like product being presented to me rather than a film. Do you know what I mean? A story being told. Yeah, I mean, there's zero story in it. It's basically... A bunch of people die. Like, this is what I expect. Yeah, it's, it's, that's... It's two hours of, you know, knife fights, gunfights, and, you know, it looks beautiful. It's... If that's what you love about the John Wick franchise, that's what you'll, you know, you'll enjoy this as well. And it's, and I'm like, okay, this isn't necessarily for me. And that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I was certainly. Some people love that. Just oh, like yeah. straight up action, not yeah. a whole lot of story. And as far as if that's what you like, you probably, you can't do much better than, than this franchise. And like I said, you know, I think Keanu Reeves is great. And. I, I wish him all the success, you know, not that he needs more success, but, you know, I don't, I, I don't think he shouldn't have success, you know, mm-hmm. he works really hard at it, and, you know, this is sort of like his, his passion project, I guess, but it's just, I was like, yeah, there's no story that really grabbed me at this point, and, like, this is what makes me so sad about Blade Runner 2049, yeah. they set it up for a third film, and we're not going to get one, no. and that's really sad, Yeah, because... 
I want to see that third film. Would There's love a 10 hour cut of that film. Really? Floating around somewhere, and I'm like, can you please give me that 10 hour cut? I wonder, because uh, uh, he's doing Dune next. Mm hmm. Which I, I'm. You're excited for it. I'm ex- I'm tentatively excited yeah. for. It. I mean, I've enjoyed all of his films, mm-hmm. so I'm like, he's gonna. It's gonna be interesting, no matter what. Um, I'm not a diehard Dune fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've read the first one and started the second book, and then I was just like, this is so boring. But <laughs> I also recognize that we wouldn't have Star Wars if we didn't have Dune. Right. And. You know, because Star Wars is basically, like, the cornerstone, the building block of uh, my childhood. And, like, all, I, I recognize that almost all creative stuff that I've been obsessed with my entire life has been built upon that foundation. So mm-hmm. I can recognize that, well, that, you know, if that's a cement block, the cornerstone, you know, Dune was the, you know, the the cement before water was mixed into it, you right. know. Um so, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm personally, like, you show me a movie trailer for anything sci-fi and I will go watch it. Especially if it has robots in it. Like, for sure. If it's got a robot in it, I've already bought a ticket. Like, forget it. Did you... You've seen Ex Machina, right? Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, that, so I, good. For, for such a low-budget film, too. Yeah, But then again, amazing. he did Sunshine, and that was amazing as well. Yeah. So. Did you see Annihilation? Yes, that was also amazing. Yeah. I loved that. Um, just the monsters in there. I guess I would call them monsters. Yeah, um, for sure. Not to spoil anything. Um, well, I mean, they the, show the one of them in the trailer. The monsters are so. very imaginative and not things that you would see. And that's I think that's really important in sci-fi is not taking the same old crap and regurgitating it. It's right. coming up with something new, and it's difficult. Right. to do but when you see it it's like game recognized game <laughs> yeah well and so many particularly like sci-fi monster movies nine times out of ten whenever I look at the preacher I'm like okay so it's someone trying to do something Giger-esque mm-hmm. but you're never gonna you're never gonna out Giger Giger mm-hmm. uh, so it, usually like preachers are disappointments to me whereas mm-hmm. yeah like the, the stuff that they did with that so creative and it's funny because I mean particularly with the you know with the gator and the bear it's something familiar and changing it enough to just make it nightmarish unsettling to like the nth degree yeah that (laughs) or like the field oh yeah the people in the field yeah yeah. that was a yeah that gave that made all the hair on my arms stand (laughs) up on end yeah and even god and this I think we're a little obsessed with the whole spoiler-free stuff, but there's the scene when the bear comes in and it has the voice in yes. its brow. I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, that's so terrifying. Yeah, it was it was great. And I also like that they did not back down with certain things about Natalie Portman's character that the studio wanted them to change to make her quote-unquote more likable. Mm -hmm. And I felt like she was a far more believable and therefore more relatable Mm -hmm. character because she's a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, Specifically about the affair Mm because they wanted them to cut that, which is why it ended up getting relegated to Netflix in every country but the United States Hmm. because they did not want that. They were basically like, fine, we'll we'll tank this. We don't want to make money with it. So... 
again, the, the you know the corporate system versus artistic vision. Right, you know, right. Know, work, right. work the way we want, or no I mean, I don't know if you saw The Wandering Earth. Um, I we sat down and watched that a couple days ago, and that is like the biggest blockbuster in Chinese cinema right now, I guess. Um, and it's been grossing so much. And it was interesting. It was definitely interesting. Um, did you see it online or did you see it? Yeah, it's on Netflix. Huh. It's on Netflix. Um, it's called The Wandering Earth. The Wandering Earth. So the plot line is um, the solar system that we're in. Uh, the sun is dying and it's going to engulf the Earth. So what they do is they install a ton of um, propulsor engines that push the Earth out of orbit to mm. go find another solar system to land in. Right. And they basically have to move the Earth for 4.2 light years. I think it's like 2,500 real-time years. Um, and they're pushing the Earth along. Right. And as they're doing that, you know, the Earth is no longer rotating. So all these, you know, there's like tsunamis and all this stuff. They have sure. to go underground to live. Yeah. And all of these things that are happening, they start you know, they get trapped in Jupiter's gravity as they're trying to slingshot past it. Mm. That's pretty much the basis of the film where they're trying to basically save the Earth from being sucked into Jupiter yeah. um, and continue along its project to eventually land wherever it is going. Do they have a destination in mind or they're just... Yeah, they're, okay. they're going to... I don't remember where they're going. But they found the solar system and they're like, that's where we got to go. This is probably the, the closest one, probably, I would assume... It has room for Earth. <laughs> I'll have to. Uh, I'll, I'll probably hit you up online and be like, "What was the name of that thing?" Because <laughs> I, I, I know I won't remember. The Wandering Earth. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I don't know how familiar you are with Asian cinema at all. Like, how Somewhat. much you've watched. Yeah. Um, it's definitely like because there's their cinematic style and cuts and like things that they do for comedic effect are yeah. very different than the things that you know we would. Do. Like, we have more slow grind storytelling where they're very like now this is happening and this is right. happening and this is happening here are some characters we're not really going to tell you much about them but eventually you'll find out stuff. Right. so it's just they present to you a bunch of stuff at once and then things happen Yeah. Um, which is just different from what we're used to in our western culture of watching yeah. in cinema so that's it's it's interesting that there was a lot of budget gone into that movie. It's yeah. CGI, though. There's a lot of stuff happening. Did you say it was, it's Chinese? Yes. Okay. Chinese. It's interesting, because um, in the past few years, there have been several big-budget U.S. and China co-productions. Uh, the Meg was the last one that comes mm-hmm. to mind, where because um, they have certain requirements in order to do that. I mean, one of them... It, has to have a certain number of, you know, Asian or specifically Chinese characters in it, which I don't have any problem with, and it's totally understandable if you're marking it to, you know, uh, the most populated it country anyway. on the planet. I right, mean, it's, exactly. Why is it a big deal? Right. Like, it should it's, anyway. It's so interesting how, like, people complain, I mean, and it's usually, you know, the mouth-breathing guys online who have problems with a lot of this stuff, and I'm like, I don't think most people really have a problem with it and if you didn't call attention to it most people wouldn't even be like oh that's weird this person and this person and this person are different than me yeah that's the world we Mm -hmm. we we all look different than Mm -hmm. you know other people and we all live on this planet Mm -hmm. so you know and hey 
sometimes we interact with others. You know, maybe <laughs> let's do that more. On, a, on occasion, yeah. you can find people that yeah. are different. <laughs> so if people want to see your artwork, follow you online, what's, how do they do that? What's your, uh, where are you on Facebook and Instagram? Um, I am consistently branded, as I mentioned to begin with. Um, it's uh, Amy Koza, and it's actually not spelled the conventional way. Right. It's not A-M-Y. It's uh, A-I-M-E-E-C-O-Z-Z-A. Um, so on Facebook, it's Facebook slash Amy Koza, Instagram slash Amy Koza, right. Twitter, Amy Koza. Tumblr's a little different. It's actually the numeral 9MM. Do, nine do, you, do you post on Tumblr a lot? I do. I, um... I've, I know there was a great artist purge... Yes. <laughs> Due to the terms of service change, but yeah. um, I'm probably in it until whoever runs it into the ground. <laughs> sure. Well, that was an interesting thing because I, Tumblr was one of those things that I did not, it didn't naturally pop into my mind, oh, I've done something, i got to post it on there. But because Tumblr was sort of the Wild West for yes. stuff <laughs> for a long time. That's true. And, um, you know, it was there was there was a lot of nudity mm-hmm. on there, and that's what they purged recently. It was yep. funny because I got a, you know, I got an. I don't think there was any forewarning about it, uh, but it, going back to what you were talking about about doing reference, using a lot of your own reference photos and whatnot. I I tend to do the same things. I do a lot of figure drawing, so I will oftentimes hire a model or I, I have probably about two dozen people that I've worked with multiple times. And, uh, and I will also, this is my little bandstand moment. If you're an artist trying to make any sort of money off your art and you're collaborating with another person, pay that other person. Mm-hmm. I, I always pay my, I always pay my models. Uh, mm-hmm. cause I know plenty of specifically photographers who are like, well, it'll be, you can put it in your portfolio. Exposure. Like, yeah. Um, I'm like, exposure yeah. doesn't pay my Yeah, bills. I tried paying my electric <laughs> bill with exposure credits. It didn't work well. <laughs> but it was one of those things that, um, you know, and I had gotten permission from a couple artists. I was just like, hey, this is sort of a different thing. Like, I look at it as almost like when a movie has deleted scenes or outtakes or director's commentaries. I was like, well, Tumblr is a venue where I can post some of the reference photos alongside uh, the finished artwork mm-hmm. and um, it, you know so I would do that and oftentimes because I would often paint people nude or semi-nude and then all of a sudden when they change their terms and conditions I get emails hey so we've we've flagged a bunch of your stuff mm-hmm. pretty much your whole account <laughs> yeah and then so I you know I opened it up and it's still like we'll have them but they're all like blurred out and they're like action required on this post action required on this post and I was like I never used it enough to and it was sort of like an aside yeah Yeah, to and I I couldn't tangibly say okay I've gained you know followers or so on and so forth with this so I was like "Eh," I just kind of like left it and I'll get once a month I'll be like hey you haven't posted anything on Tumblr in a while like from Tumblr (laughs) I'm like yeah yeah that's correct. There's a reason. Yeah. Um, the biggest problem with Tumblr and their big purge was not necessarily what they were accepting. I mean, yes, they were kind of trying to purge out all of these porn blogs. Right. Um, the, I don't know if you know the reasoning. Mm-mm. So um, I don't know how much of this is speculation, but this is basically the gist of what I've heard. 
um, the Tumblr app got taken off of Apple's store because of the amount of porn they have on the servers. Because, again, Wild West, like you said, sure. um, a lot of porn blogs, a lot of like porn GIFs and yeah. videos and things like that. So Tumblr was like, all right, well, we need to... That's a pretty big market that you've just been cut out of. Sure. Um, so in order to get back on the Apple store, um, iTunes store, they purged out all of the porn. Yeah. The problem is, is that they were purging out these porn blogs. They um, revised their terms of service to say that they will accept artistic nudity. They automated all of this, and lots and lots of things that were not even nudity at all were getting flagged, and there was no way to see that these were flagged. I right. went through my blog. Um, I think they... I believe they only looked at things for the first like the most recent five years. So I had to go through five years worth of my blog's post to find all of these posts that were incorrectly marked as having explicit material when they didn't. They were, you know, for some reason it thought that a picture of a unicorn was, we don't even know. Sure. I mean, unicorns aren't sexy. (laughs) Their algorithm or whatever they were using to find explicit content was just... It was just wrong. It was off. And there was no way... You had to physically go to your dashboard, a certain place in your dashboard, to see if there were items that were marked. And it was a very specific spot. You had to do it on a desktop computer. You couldn't do it with the app. You couldn't... You know, it was like somebody did not think about this very, very in-depth. And they didn't implement it well, so it left a really bad taste in a lot of users' mouths. Not just like, oh, I can't post NWS content anymore. It wasn't just that. It was just the handling of it, how they rolled it out, how they went and how they warned people, why they did it. Just the whole thing was just... A mess. Yeah. But that's like what people come to expect from Tumblr because mm-hmm. it seems like every time they push out a new feature, feature, it right. has some sort of bug or problem or, you know, some something. Like, yeah. I I don't know if they've just got coding monkeys back there that are just pounding at a keyboard and then they right. just press go on it and it goes. Um, but that's a pretty consistent problem with Tumblr, and I heard Pornhub is thinking about buying them now. So that would be an interesting flip of the switch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because they're like, oh, we have no problem with that. And it's funny because uh, I, don't, I think it was last year uh, on April Fools that Pornhub did that thing where they they said that they were going to release everyone's uh, browsing history. To their to all their social medias, <laughs> and people freaked out. And they're, it, 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 I guess it was only up for like an hour or so. And they're like, really? "Look at the date. We're joking." <laughs> but I was like, "Well, I, in a weird sort of way, I kind of respect the fact that it's like they at least have a sense of humor and like yeah. realize their the place that they have uh, in, in. I mean, I don't know if I don't know if there's a social media aspect to it. Like Pornhub or whatnot. I I I, I kind of hope not, but <laughs> well, you can leave comments. I do know that much. <laughs> I, I mean, they say in general, never read comments. Yeah, I, I would imagine wanna... that was like the bottom of the lowest barrel. <laughs> com- oh God, man! I think what's really interesting is yearly they release the um, statistics on that site, um, like 
most type of viewed videos right. and like what's searched right. for that year and like all the breakdowns of the demographics and that is really entertaining to go through to see like the most search terms and things like that it's like you really yeah. get to delve into people's minds for a minute sure so that's pretty interesting to say the least I, a, f- a friend of mine a couple months ago uh, as part of her Instagram story she posted a screen grab of her in, it was Pornhub's search window and it says someone who genuinely enjoys my company with her like search <laughs> thing and it's at zero results <laughs> just, that was funny yeah. that's good <laughs> well um, thanks for thanks for coming out and chatting with me it was nice to actually meet you in person and look forward to seeing more of your fantastic artwork well, thank you yeah. I look forward to creating more and so if someone wants to if someone's interested in one of the the, the, the remaining uh, sheep yes. enamel pins how, yes. how would they there are links through your there site. are links to you my site you have an Etsy page too I correct? do have an Etsy page yes they are listed on Etsy um, there should be a link from my website um, I think I also do mention it on the actual Kickstarter um, I think just on Etsy if you search it for origami sheep enamel okay. pin it's pretty much one of the top you, results yeah you'll, okay. you'll see it okay um, is it easier like with Etsy because I've the only time I shop on Etsy is when artists that I follow or like I put some new stuff up and there's a link to their store I've never gone to Etsy like cold and tried to find something really? specific because I got frustrated with the search engine mm-hmm. and like would I mean to be fair my first exposure to Etsy was do you remember Regretsy mm-hmm. uh, which was amazing and I and I love that but that was like my first exposure and I was like because I didn't I didn't get it at first because I had never been on Etsy before and then I started searching and I was like oh yeah there's a lot of this on there so um but then when I was trying to find I don't remember what I was looking for but it was a few years ago I was like oh I wonder if I could find something like this that somebody has made and it was just such a nightmare and Mm -hmm. some of my friends who sell on Etsy pretty regularly like yeah it's a lot of work just to maintain the Etsy site and be able to be visible to people searching Mm -hmm. so I was like "Ah, I know I'm not going to dedicate that much time to doing it because you know some people have been like you should open up an Etsy shop yeah it's hard I was like well the amount of time that I would put into running it it's time I could be painting and you know and and maybe that's the difference of you know selling 40% more art than I'm selling now but I don't know just working two jobs and whatnot and you know divided time divided energy i'm like i know right now i'm not gonna do it so right i hear you it seems a very hard and i more power to anybody who does it you know i think it's more useful when you have more than one item um like i've got like 60 pins (laughs) like I, i can just throw up a listing say that i have 60 and then as it depletes it'll just keep itself running um, I've never had any luck with prints through Etsy. Um, I don't know. I think I just don't know how to play the Etsy game yeah. or I don't dedicate enough time to that, but I prefer print on demand services for that. Cause then it's just sure. somebody else deals with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Go to the site, order yeah, it. And then, yeah. Order it. And then, you know, you get a cut. We're doing that. Um, we're doing some t-shirts for, for one of my other podcasts and it was, you know, that seems to be the way to go now. The on demand thing. 
yes, you make less from it, but mm-hmm. there's very little upfront cost for you. And, and you it's, don't have to deal with shipping it. Yeah. You don't have to deal with handling it. You don't have to deal with it. If it comes wrong, uh, you don't have to deal with any of that stuff. You right. just have made the design, put it up online, and then you get a small cut. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Yeah, um, yeah I, I made a bunch of shirts a couple years ago of some of my paintings, and just sort of guessed on sizes and I so I have like probably have 20 shirts in of half a dozen designs in just the most random <laughs> sizes and mm-hmm. now when I do art fairs like I don't even put them up anymore because I'm like oh, if you like that design I guarantee you I don't have it in the size <laughs> right? you want um I, I may just use Instagram and do a giveaway do giveaways to, yeah, yeah. Be like hey I, I've got these in this size and you know so on and so forth yeah because I've even even the friends who are I'm like, hey, what size shirt do you wear? Oh, you know, a, a medium. Do you want this or this? Nah. Do you have that one? No, I don't have that one in that size. So I'm just <laughs> trying to get rid of this stuff. <laughs> trying to give you a free damn T-shirt. But I mean, the alternative is you can you know brand it with a URL and then throw it into the wild, donate to Goodwill or something. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. That's interesting. Oh, that's just, <laughs> Because I've, I've sold, because I sell a lot of stuff on eBay, mm-hmm. uh, I'm like trying to downsize the heaping collections that I have of mm-hmm. everything, and I've sold two original paintings on eBay, Oh wow! which surprised me. Um, maybe I should do that, just throw it up there. Leave them up till it sells, we'll see. 99 cents? That's that's <laughs> usually what I do. I'm like, 99 cents plus $5 shipping. It's, you know, <laughs> shipping a t-shirt in the United States in 2019 is not cheap. It's it's so weird because like it costs like $5 to ship a shirt mm-hmm. or like five twenty five to ship five shirts. Like, it's ridiculous. Really? Like, yeah. do, you, do you use like a PayPal ship now feature? Um, sometimes I will. It really depends because I, I had been using that for a little while. And then just this past week, two things that I paid for ship came back they're like yeah insufficient funds and like it, like it wasn't like it didn't get it all the way there and then they sent it back and then but because it had been like you know canceled through the usps like i don't get any of that money back like paypal so i was like okay so now i'm just going to go back to how i was doing it just walking into the post office having them weigh it and they're like this is what it's going to cost i so round it up that's what i usually do i and, do you have a scale no. Maybe that's your problem. Well, you're guesstimating. Well, most of what I sell on eBay is either CDs or records. Right. So that's media mail. So it's just... Oh, one straight? Okay. Yeah. But um, other stuff, like... I, I, and I even say in my description, I'm, I'm rounding up because I'm also covering the cost for shipping materials the pro- yeah, the and packaging. yeah and i was just like i'll do the fact that i'm driving to the post office. yeah i'm like i'm doing com- i'll do combined shipping on one or more of similar things but like if you order something media mail and then a t-shirt I, i'm not going to combine shipping because uh, it's going to cost me more like i can't sell, send a shirt media mail and throwing a cd into a you know a first class thing adds weight to it so either way it's going to cost more money but mm-hmm. again ridiculous artist problems yep artist so, problems yeah. <laughs> well yeah awesome thanks for uh thanks for chatting with me for You're this welcome. yeah cool